Gabriel Blue's plane, All-American, was taxiing back to its hard stand after a mission. The older B-17 had 14 missions under its belt, and six of the ten men had surpassed the famous unlucky 13th mission. One of them was Captain Gabriel Blue himself. Captain Gabriel Blue was just 22 years old and had just flown and completed his 14th mission. He was more than halfway through his 25 mission tour, a big deal in this type of warfare. Once the plane arrived at the hard stand and all engines ceased, the nose hatch of the green and gray bird opened up and one of Blue's fellow officers jumped down. The man was tall and had the athletic build of a basketball player. He took off his officer's cap and combed his fingers through his long, dirty blonde hair. His name was First Lieutenant Henry Jameson from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He was 25 years old and had just flown his 13th mission. He was the plane's navigator and he was good at it too, having led the group three times on a mission and never once went off course. Putting his cap back on, Jameson looked up into the nose hatch to see if his buddy, First Lieutenant Lee Smith, was exiting the plane. Jameson had been worried about Smith for quite some time. After losing two of his buddies in one day in the skies over Germany during Big Week, he was really beginning to show the signs of the Fokker Wolf jitters. Suddenly, Jameson could see the lower half of a torso appearing above the open hatch. The body quickly jumped down from the plane, and once the individual had landed on the concrete, he lifted up his head and looked at Jameson. It was indeed his friend and bombardier, Lee Smith. Lee was short by comparison to Jameson. He stood at 5 foot 6 inches tall, had short brown hair, a pointed chin, and a defined jawline. His eyes were sunken in, and judging by the looseness of his flight clothes, he had lost a substantial amount of weight since he arrived in England. Ooh. One more down. Jameson commented, lighting up two cigarettes and handing Smith one of them. Yeah. One more down. Smith sheepishly repeated, before taking a puff off of his cigarette. Before Jameson could ask his friend anything else, both Blue and his co-pilot jumped down from the nose hatch. Gabriel Blue, even though he was just 22 years old, looked even younger. When he first arrived at Thurlow almost two months ago, everyone referred to him as the Babe because of his young, narrow face. However, that nickname quickly was replaced with a different name. Hawkeye. This nickname came from the fact that Blue had piercing eyes which often came before he attacked another person who rubbed him the wrong way. Gabriel's father was a banker in downtown Hartford, Connecticut. He lost his job during the stock market crash that begun what became known as the Great Depression. Things became dire when his father failed to find another job and the daily need to feed Gabriel's four older brothers and twin sister drove him to insanity. Gabriel's father went for a walk one afternoon and never came back. His body was found two days later, nestled along the shores of the Connecticut River, about four miles from where he was last seen. 
The autopsy report concluded that he had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound and fell into that river. After that, Gabriel learned the hard way, that if he didn't fight, he didn't survive. A characteristic that nearly got him kicked out of school, but made him a tough-as-nails commander. His co-pilot was the olive-skinned football player from Detroit, Michigan, named Joseph Peck. Second Lieutenant Peck was not among the original crew members assigned to All-American, but he was added to the crew when the original co-pilot, Lieutenant Clarence McPoyle, was shot down while flying with another crew over a month ago. Blue and the others immediately walked towards the back of the plane, where the rest of the crew were exiting. Once back there, the men all began talking amongst themselves, and not before long, the other airmen from other planes met them and began walking through the mission. About five minutes later, a troop truck arrived at the hard stand of the men, and they gathered their things and filed into the back of the open truck bed. While the men rode back to the main section of the base, Blue and the others watched as ambulances, fire trucks, and other vehicles arrived and left the five B-17s that had landed and went into the grass. These crews didn't bother taxiing back to their hard stands due to them having injured aboard and needing the wounded to be brought back to the base hospital where most of them would get the much needed medical attention. Many of these men were the men that Blue and the rest of his crew knew and became close with in the last two months. None of the men talked to one another. They were all saving their energy and words for the intelligence debriefing that they were headed to. There the men would sit down with an intelligence officer and go through the major events of the mission, reporting any downed planes, weather reports, and other details. About five minutes later, the men arrived at the debriefing hut, and one by one, Blue and the rest of his crew walked through the front door of the large half-cylinder hut. Once they arrived inside, the men were greeted by three stunningly beautiful Red Cross women who offered the men a hot cup of coffee, a glazed donut, and a shot of brandy. Most of the men took the shot of brandy and downed the spirit and then handed the ladies back the empty glass and then proceeded to walk to the empty table that was inside the hut in utter silence. Once they arrived at the wooden table, the men all sat down putting their donut and coffee in front of them. All ten men's faces looked downcast. Their faces all showed signs that life and passion had been taken from them, leaving just the shell of skin and bone. Most of the enlisted men looked to be in their late teens and early twenties. However, one of the enlisted men looked to be much older than everybody else. The baseball flying cap that he was wearing had the bill bent upward, and the words Old Fart were painted along the underside of the brim. He looked to be in his thirties. The men all sat in silence, taking bites of their donut and sips out of their coffee. The sounds of the other crews being debriefed could be heard in the background. Within a few minutes, an intelligence officer arrived at Blue's table and asked the men to walk them through the mission. The majority of the crew looked to Blue and then he proceeded to explain some of the day's events. Well, we, um, we first encountered fighters, two squadrons of ME-109s, just as we arrived over the Belgian coast. 
The flock was pretty light, so the fighters didn't seem to give too much of a damn and attack us head on. That was, um, that was when I saw Lieutenant Olson's ship go down. Bastards tore up the cockpit and the nose pretty good. But how many got out? I, um, oh, I don't remember. Johnny Blue asked one of the enlisted men. I counted two shoots. Johnny responded. Okay, then. All right, what else happened? The intelligence officer asked. Well, they made two more passes at us, knocking down two other forts until they turned back. Shortly after that, that's when I saw a fort from the 96th, I think it was the 96th, fall behind and disappear into the clouds. Oh yeah, it was definitely the 96th. Uh, by the way, the clouds over there were so fucking thick you could build all of Manhattan on them, Jameson commented. Okay, that bad, huh? The intelligence officer asked. Yeah, once we arrived at the fourth waypoint, that was when the lead navigator must have gotten lost due to cloud cover. We veered off course for almost nine minutes before Jameson figured it out and almost 12 minutes before the course even changed, Blue commented. And by that point, the clouds had moved just enough that the flak batteries of Cologne could just see us, and that's when all hell broke loose, Jameson butted in. So the formation was that far off? The intelligence officer asked, sounding shocked. Yeah, it was hell up there. I'd never seen so much of a mess, one of the enlisted men said. So, from that point on, what else happened? Well, we quickly banged right to get us out of the range of the flat guns, but that's when we realized, at least Jameson did, that we were flying directly over Bonn, Blue commented. Now, how much longer did the formation fly on this new course? Asked the intelligence officer. Jameson then spoke up as he took out his flight log. You see, we flew for about five minutes before an official heading was even given. We just followed the lead plane. Jameson was then cut off by the intelligence officer. So you didn't have a heading when the formation turned? No, sir, Jameson said, looking at his flight log. When, when we banked right, the flak was pretty thick. It was very chaotic. We just followed the lead plane. And uh, that was when we saw those two 17s go down, said one of the enlisted men. Yeah, that's right. At uh, 11.57, two B-17s from the 260th collided and they went down. We only counted four shoots, Jameson explained. Okay. And um, what happened after that? The intelligence officer asked. As the group began to talk, Captain Blue stared at the center of the table, his eyes looking completely tranced as the sounds of men saying their final goodbyes as their planes fell towards Earth rung in his head. The sounds of boys calling out for their mothers pierced his psyche, and the fact that he had to hear these sounds because there was a navigational mistake angered him greatly. How many men died today because of what one navigator did, he thought to himself. How many sons, how many fathers were butchered, burnt to hell, or locked away in some stalag because of what one senseless navigator did? He hated senseless men. Senseless men get others killed. Blue's aggravated thinking was interrupted by the intelligence officer asking him yet another question. Captain, would you care to add anything else before we end here? Blue paused for a moment. The sudden thought of leaping over the table and strangling this intelligence officer brought Blue much pleasure. 
It was as if the pencil-skinny officer, without a single scuff on his uniform, represented the essence of what Blue hated about the upper brass. It was the stiff-back officers who planned a mission on a day that consisted of bad weather and didn't seem to care. It was the academic scum who thought that filling a Coke can with wings full of bombs and gasoline made it an effective weapon of war. Men like this intelligence officer had never been in a bar fight, let alone had the responsibility of fighting like hell to get himself and nine others back to base with flak fighters in the cold sky trying to kill them. Captain? The intelligence officer asked. Blue looked at the officer with a certain aggressiveness that earned him his nickname. His infamous Hawkeyes made his fellow crew members uncomfortable. However, instead of doing what he knew would make him feel better in the moment, he took a deep breath, clenched his teeth together, and aimed his face downward and said, Nope, nope, I think, uh, I think he heard it all. The intelligence officer then excused the men, and Blue's crew stood up and proceeded to walk out of the debriefing hut and make their way towards their separate area of the base. Along the way, Blue walked to the base's mail office, which was a long brick building that also housed the base's clothing depot. The single-story structure smelled of cigarettes and coffee as Blue walked in. The man standing behind the counter was a tall, burly man with short black curls. Hey, it's good to see you made it back. How was Frankfurt? The man asked. It was hell. Got any mail for me, Leo? Blue asked. I do, actually. Just one, though. Leo said as he turned around and looked at the small cubbyhole with a single envelope inside. He grabbed it and then handed it to Blue. When Blue looked down, he saw that it was from his sister. Seeing this, he looked up, rolled his eyes, and then looked back down at the envelope. Your sister again? Leo asked. Unfortunately, Blue responded. The two men stood in silence for a moment before Leo spoke up, saying, You know, Blue, you make me laugh. With a drink in your hand and several more in your belly, you have no problem telling me about your entire family history and all about your sister. But sober, I'm lucky if I ever hear more than two words from you in a sentence. Blue gave Leo a look of utter emptiness, and Leo could see that the void that Blue's soul had begun to create. Most men, when receiving letters, showed expressions of happiness, joy, and relief, but not Blue. Captain Blue only received two letters a week, maybe three or four on a good week. One was always from his mother. Sometimes he would get one from a girl he had a one-night swing with back in the States before he headed to England. But one, if not two, was always from his sister. Sometimes his sister would write Blue more than his own mother did. He loved his twin sister dearly, but after a long drunken night of writing, expressing to her what it was really like on a military base, Blue had been avoiding talking to her. He regretted that letter and hoped that maybe his sister would just avoid talking about what he had said and complained about. It had nearly been four weeks ago, and a lot has happened since then. A lot of the people who he wrote about and complained about were now dead. His bunkmates were, his squadron commander was, that lieutenant from California whose, quote, feet smelled awful, was now long gone. 
vaporized by a direct flak shell that exploded in their loaded bomb bay in the skies over Brest Harbor. That young 19-year-old waste gunner who wasted ammo was now a mangled mess in some military hospital, or hopefully dead. No mother, he thought to himself, wants to receive back their son in the way that he was made by a German 20mm cannon. It would be better for her to receive a telegram from the War Department than for her to receive a faceless, armless body that somehow was still living and the doctors had the gall to call her son. Blue opened that letter and saw that it was another typical Are you okay? Why haven't you wrote me? type of letter. He folded the letter back up and put it in his pocket. That was when the door of the mailroom opened up and another officer walked in. However, this officer was the one who was in charge of the building on the base. Oh, it's good to see you, Lieutenant. Been looking for you, Blue said. Yeah? Says that so? So is everybody else. Look, I don't know when the billets are going to get changed. We're still waiting to hear back from the RAF whether or not they're going to share the base with us, the lieutenant said. No, it's not about that. Something more practical, Blue commented. Oh, well, I'm all ears. I like practical, the lieutenant joked. What are the chances that you can move another crew into our hut? Preferably a crew that's flown more than five missions. I mean, that's a weird request. May I ask what your reasoning is, Captain? Well, you see, it's just... We've had three new bunkmates since we got here. Remember, Blue, you were a new crew member at one time, too. Yeah, I'm aware of that. It's just, listen... It's just hard to see new faces every single week. I'm tired of hearing a thousand rookie questions. It hasn't been good for morale. Blue finished his defense. I hear what you're saying, Captain. I do. Trust me. It's just not practical to move a whole crew into a new billet just because you don't want to be bothered. The lieutenant finished. That's not why. It's just Blue began to say but was cut off. Besides, Captain, we're moving a new crew into your hut as we speak. You're in 299, right? Blue's face suddenly went gray. What? He muttered. Yeah, they just flew in this morning. After hearing this, Blue quickly ran out of the hut, leaving the empty envelope on the counter. Blue ran all the way over to where his hut was located. Once there, he saw a military truck parked in front of his hut and four unidentified officers belonging to the new crew were unloading their stuff and walking into his hut. Gabriel took in a deep breath and thought to himself, It's okay, Gabe. They'll be gone in a week's time. Don't even bother learning their names. It will all be over soon. You've been listening to a bonus mini-episode of Snafu. This episode is to give you, the listener, a taste as to what you can expect from this podcast. This episode was originally a part of the first episode that is to be aired in July. However, due to time constraints, this section had to be cut from that episode. But due to the important nature of the content and also the backstory, I felt that it was necessary to release a bonus mini-episode of that content. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit our website, which is down in the show notes, and also visit one of our social media pages, either on Instagram or on Facebook. 
The link for that is also down in the show notes. If you haven't checked it out yet, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that is again down in the show notes. Once there, for a few dollars a month, you can unlock all kinds of cool bonus content relating to the podcast. For instance, for this bonus episode, you can unlock pictures of the crew members and the characters described in today's episode, as well as get pictures of the base itself, where the buildings are located, and other important documents. If you have questions or comments relating to today's episode or the podcast in general, please send them into one of our social media platforms, and I'll be sure to answer those questions and release it as a special Q&A episode on Tuesday on our Patreon page. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast thus far, and I hope to hear from you amazing people in July when Season 1, Episode 1 of Snafu airs. Thank you so much, and God bless.